Hello everyone, and thank you for listening to this first in a series of podcasts that I intend to record all about first aid. The skills and the techniques that I'll be discussing with you will help save someone's life. And I make no bones about that fact. That's how critical first aid is. And I should just point out as well that listening to this podcast is not designed to replace any formal training. I know that listeners out there do understand that, but hopefully what this podcast will do is give you something to fall back on. At the very least, it should make you feel more confident in an emergency situation. Let's be honest, if something happened, how many people do you know would actively put themselves forward to help? And how many do you know who would just stand by and let others take the lead? I'm not saying everybody needs to get stuck in because the shock of something happening may be too much for some. The way I see it, any first aid training and knowledge that you have is a bonus. So let's talk about when you're confronted with an emergency situation. Before we get to the primary survey, we need to assess a few things. Safety must be the number one priority. Not just of any potential casualties, but yourself included. There could be chemicals, gases, sharps, blood, etc. that you may be exposed to. And the last thing that you want to do is increase the risk of infection or just simply create more casualties for people to have to deal with. If the situation isn't safe for you to respond to, then you can't. Don't put yourself at a greater risk than you need to. Next, we need to do is check for hazards. So like I said, there could be chemicals present, but it wholly depends on where you are, the situation that you're in. Fire, gas and electricity could all pose a very real threat. Even cars. If the emergency, for example, you need to deal with is in the middle of a busy road, traffic is going to be one of your biggest concerns. Now, ideally, someone else would be with you, in which case, whilst you continue to assess the situation and conduct your primary survey, assign them the role of managing the traffic. And that might just involve them going off to inform somebody else who can actually help. Either way, giving them a job to do gives them a purpose and that makes them useful to you. Before you're rushing into any incident, You need to assess the situation that you're confronted with. That really is the most crucial bit of uh, this kind of introduction that I'm doing to this podcast. And then once you've worked out who potential casualties are and you've assessed the kind of incident, what you really need to do is prioritise. You need to prioritise the injuries, particularly if there are multiple casualties. And pay attention to the environment that's around you. For example, if this incident, let's just let's just say it involves a body of water and a potential drowning. So we've gone for quite a serious emergency situation there. If you can't really swim or you're not a confident swimmer, jumping into the water is a foolish thing to do because all you're doing is just creating a greater situation for people to deal with. So consider your safety, look for the hazards, assess the situation, prioritise who it is that needs help most, especially if there are multiple casualties, And then just assess the environment to make sure that it really is safe for you to act. So let's get into the primary survey, which is really your initial assessment of the situation. Now, there's a really nice little mnemonic here that um, 
people often use in first aid training to remember this, and it's Dr. ABC. So D-R-A-B-C. And I'll go through each of those with you. So D represent dangers. And I've alluded to this already in, in what I've I've said, but you need to make sure that the area is safe before you even think about offering the casualty any help. It's got to be safe for you, it's got to be safe for the casualty, but also any bystanders. If there are people who are just there, who aren't actively helping, you have to make sure that before you act, you don't endanger them also. The R in Dr. ABC is for response. So what is recommended here is that you approach a potential casualty from their feet. So it would reduce the risk of the casualty hyperextending their neck should they be responsive. But also, if you just imagine it's a little bit less daunting, let's imagine that they're... Um, if they're, if you have an unconscious casualty, let's say, and but they're slowly starting to come round, if they can see you near their head or appearing over or leaning over, you can imagine that's quite a, a terrifying situation to be in. Not least because of the potential injury, but because they've got somebody who they don't know potentially over their body, over their face. So it's recommended that you approach from the feet end. They can see you coming. If they are responsive and conscious, they can see you coming. And it's just a, a good way that you can actually take a good look at the situation at hand. What's recommended is that you perform a responsive check by using the AVPU scale. Now, this is a really easy one to remember. It stands for alert, voice, place for your hands, and unresponsive. So I'll just go through each of those. And this is all part of the R of response for the Dr. ABC. And then we'll get into the ABC part, which is, as many of you may know already, to do with airway, breathing, and circulation, or CPR more specifically. So A represents alert. So if they are fully responsive, then what you really want to do is ascertain the extent of the injury and deal with it appropriately. If they're responsive, they may they can help you. They can tell you what it is that's wrong, what might help, what might not help. The most important thing at this stage, though, is to make sure that you get consent and ask, would you like any help? You don't really want to be acting and making any physical contact or doing anything unless you're certain, absolutely certain, that that person who you are helping wants that help from you. V is for voice. Really simply, are you all right? A very, very quick uh, question. And if they're not alert, then just simply see if they will respond to a voice command. But if you ask, are you all right? The, you're just engaging in conversation, but then it allows you to see how responsive they actually are. And if they're not all right, if they don't respond to that, then P for place your hands basically on their shoulders and just give them a gentle shake. If they don't respond to a voice command, then they might respond to something physical, like a very gentle shake on the shoulders. And in fact, you could do V and P together at the same time. Just a gentle shake. Hello, hello, can you hear me? Are you okay? Something along those lines. Now, this is critical. This really is critical. If you think that that it person or that casualty has a possible spinal or head injury, the last thing you want to do is move them. So you do not shake them in any way at all. If you suspect a head or spinal injury, by moving them, you could make things much, much worse. That could you could pose, or you could, you could really do them much greater nerve damage by moving them. 
because you don't know the extent of the injuries. It could encourage further bleeding, you could encourage potential bone uh, obstruction on any of the nerves. So if you think that their head is injured or their spine may be injured, then just don't move them. And then the U therefore leads to unresponsive, an unresponsive casualty. If there is no response at all, when you shake them, if possible, and if you talk to them through a voice command, then you can deem them to be unresponsive. And the reason why I use that word quite uh, carefully, unresponsive, is because it's when you look at uh, the, the steps that you employ within uh, sort of first aid techniques, it very much depends on whether the person is responsive or unresponsive, because an unresponsive patient most likely is going to require CPR, and that's really the most crucial uh, difference. If your casualty does respond, then you can just leave them in the position that you find them. Providing that there is no further danger, if you think that there is danger, if the, so for example, going back to when I said if you're in the middle of the road, if they're able to move and you know that the current location that they're in is posing them a greater threat, then you might be able to move to somewhere safer and then deal with any other kind of injuries that you think may be prevalent or present rather. Try to find out what is wrong with them and treat them accordingly. This is the point where I would call for professional medical help. And again, if somebody else is with you, then you can tell them to do this for you whilst you're continuing to reassure the casualty. And that's that's really important because it's probably a very scary time uh, that they're going through and having you there as well. It just would compound that effect. So if you can reassure them whilst getting someone else potentially to call uh for medical assistance that would be great if you're the only one there then you should be calling but what you want to do is really hone in on the technical detail if you just say that you have a casualty that's no use to the to the ambulance service what they'd want to know is have you gone through the the avpu scale for example have you checked that they are responsive that they're alert that they they're aware potentially of any possible injuries and if you are aware of any potential injuries then relay those to the medical professionals Every little bit of information that you can pass on really does help. If you are on your own, I should just point out, you don't really want to be leaving the casualty on their own. Their situation could get much worse and having you there really would make the difference. So if there are bystanders, if there are people around, there's loads of things that they could be doing for you. And I've already said about calling the ambulance, but they can manage the crowds or hazards. Obviously, safety permitting, they don't really want to be putting themselves in more danger. If there's a first aid kit or a defibrillator, they could go fetch them. If the casualty has friends or relatives in the vicinity, they very well may be experiencing shock or distress. This is where a bystander can uh, really prove quite useful and they can be reassuring those friends and relatives. They can help with a cleanup operation. If there is debris or anything like that, then they can help with that and make the area safer. But actually, when you think about it, having someone else there could just be support for you. If you are taking a lead in this uh, first aid management, then having someone else there to kind of fall back on, to rely on, uh, to be able to bounce ideas, if you like, off, really would be a great support. Because you don't really want to be feeling like you're on your own with this, especially if there are others around you who can 
and are able to help. So this is all part of our primary survey, assessing that patient, looking at the dangers and assessing how responsive they are. And if they're not, then that's when we really need to consider our ABC. A is airway. And this, this I would argue, is the most fundamental things to be checking. Because if, if they have no oxygen getting in to their lungs, then they are massively at risk. That is the first thing, the most fundamental thing that you really need to check with a casualty. And then that leads on to breathing. So let's just look at airway in a little bit more detail. So what you really want to do is turn the casualty onto their back, if possible, again, and open their airway using the, the you may be aware, the head tilt and the chin lift method. So basically to do this, if you just put your hand on their forehead and very gently tilt the head back, now, on, on dummies and models that you practice on, you find that the head tilts back really easily. The model's designed to do, to do that. But a human head is notably heavier. I mean, you could, I would say, try this out with a friend, but to actually tilt the head back is quite difficult to do. So you may need to apply a bit of force to be able to get that head to tilt right back. And then with two fingertips under the point of their chin, what you want to do is lift the chin to open the airway. Don't worry at this stage about injuring them or, or being quite forceful. At the end of the day, what you're doing is really important. And whilst it may seem a little bit uncomfortable by raising their chin, by opening their airway up, trust me, that, that, that's a lifesaver. Now, be careful not to press on any of the fleshy parts under the chin, because that is clearly going to restrict the airway. What you want to do is support their head in this position to perform a simple breathing check. What you've got to do, and this leads into the B of the ABCs, breathing. What you want to do is look, listen, and feel for normal breathing. No more than about 10 seconds. If, if you can hear normal breathing for around 10 seconds, then that's great. You don't have to wait the whole 10 seconds, but you need to keep it long enough to ascertain whether it's normal breathing or atypical breathing. So look for chest movements. Can you see in signs of inhalation, exhalation? Can you see those ribs moving up and out? Can you see the chest moving up and down? Listen at their mouth for breath sounds. Do they sound normal? And feel for air on your cheek. If they are breathing normally, you should feel them exhaling. You will feel some uh, air on your face. In the first few minutes after what we call a cardiac arrest, a casualty may be barely breathing or taking infrequent noisy gasps. Now this is often termed agonal breathing or gasping and it must not be confused with normal breathing. It's really noticeable and quite peculiar and actually quite scary if you haven't seen this before. So it looks like it could be normal breathing, but it's not. There's no clear inhalation and exhalation. It, it's gasping and it's noisy, a bit raspy, if you like. Now, this agonal breathing is a problem because if because what it means is they're not getting the correct airflow. They're not getting any adequate supply of oxygen into their body. If you have a casualty who is unresponsive and they are not breathing normally it's likely that they are in what we call cardiac arrest. And as the name suggests, cardiac heart arrest, stop, it's likely that their heart is soon, 
not necessarily immediately, but it's soon likely to stop. But what it really means, if we, if we really dig a bit deeper, if it's in cardiac arrest, what we're really talking about is a state of fibrillation, where the heart is, is contracting, still. it is actually contracting, but completely out of sync. That's really the starting point of cardiac arrest, fibrillation. It's beating out of sync. We're not getting true atrial contraction, then ventricular contraction, or what we call ventricular systole. So we're getting a complete inadequate blood flow or circulation around the body. This casualty then does need CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Now, I should just uh, state that Immediately following cardiac arrest, blood flow to the brain is reduced to virtually zero. Now, the reason I mention this is because you may find that your casualty experiences seizure-like episodes, and that can sometimes be confused with epilepsy. So you should really be suspicious of cardiac arrest with any casualty that presents seizure-like symptoms, and then carefully assess whether they are breathing normally. Uh, in the near future, I'll be doing a separate podcast on epilepsy and seizures. So that might be one to listen out for. So let's get into the C of the Dr. ABC. CPR for a non-breathing casualty. So if your casualty you've determined is not breathing normally, you've looked, you've listened, you've felt, and there's nothing. If they're not breathing normally as you expect, then, well, as you did, as I've said previously, the ambulance would be called immediately and you would need to tell the operator that they are not breathing normally. That's really crucial that you tell them that so they know that it could be agonal breathing that they're dealing with. Like I said, if there's a bystander, they can make that call because what you need to do is commence cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR without delay. You really need to get going on that. What you could do is ask anybody if they are around to find what we call an AED or an automated external defibrillator. So we often refer to them as just a defibrillator, but they go by the name automated external defibrillators also or AEDs. But it may not be the case that they're around or so easily accessible. How they ultimately work is if you think of, I said the heart goes into fibrillation almost. A little bit like a spasm in the way it's not beating correctly. So a defibrillator, I think of it, and when I teach my students, this is how I describe it. It's like pushing reset, pushing a reset button on the heart. It causes a, well, it essentially causes the heart to reset a new wave of electrical activity coming from the SAN or the sinoatrial node, which we colloquially call the pacemaker. And it just restarts the heart. We get a proper impulse over the atria causing their contraction then to the ventricles causing their contraction and we just get that heart beating in sync again that's what a defibrillator is designed to do push restart and get it from beating out of sync back into a regular rhythm so if your casualty is breathing normally as i said you just treat any injuries and you can put them then into the recovery position but if not then you want to begin CPR. So let's talk about what CPR actually involves because there is a, a particular technique that we be, need to be using when we when we begin this. And this is this really could make the difference between life and death. 
it is an emergency procedure. So when you get to the point where you're doing CPR and resuscitation, you really don't have... I was going to say don't have long, but it it depends how well this is done. If you can conduct CPR well, that casualty will have a much greater chance of survival. So it really is important that if you are undergoing formal practice or you listen to this podcast, that you, you really do practice this and train yourself to do CPR correctly. What it does, it's a, it's a procedure that combines chest compressions with rescue breaths. The chest compression basically replaces the heart's ability to pump oxygenated blood around the body, particularly to the vital organs such as the brain. Rescue breathing will help to provide the casualty who who can't breathe for themselves, let's say, the valuable oxygen that they need to transport around the body by the chest compression. So it's kind of like a double whammy. You're breathing in, you're breathing for them to give them the oxygen and the chest compressions will help push the oxygen around. You have, without oxygen, about a three-minute window before brain damage could occur. So, as I've I've said, uh, what you do next really is paramount here. So let me talk you through the whole uh, CPR procedure. What you're going to do is kneel by the side of a casualty and place the heel of one hand in the centre of the casualty's chest. So really what you want to do is be putting it sort of on the lower half of the casualty's breastbone or sternum. You're then going to place the heel of your other hand on top of the first hand, interlock the fingers of your hands to ensure that the pressure is not applied over the ribs, And what you don't want to do is apply any pressure over the upper abdomen or the bottom end of the sternum. You then would position yourself vertically above their chest and with the arms straight. So what you're doing is really putting all that force going down through your arms, through your hands to their chest. And you want to press down on the sternum for about about five centimetres approximately. After each compression, you want to release all of the pressure on the chest without losing contact between your hands and their sternum. So you don't want to lean on the chest. But if you keep pushing down and you don't lift your hands back up, let's say, then you're not creating that kind of pressure gradient in their thorax, in their chest, to allow the oxygen to first kind of come in to the system of the heart and to then leave. So it's really important that after you've pressed down and compressed the chest, that you raise your hands up. Because it's that that's going to create that kind of pumping action. Now you want to repeat about 30 chest compressions at a speed of about 100 to around 120 compressions per minute. And compression and release should take an equal amount of time. Now you, fitness is really key here. It is. And having done this a number of times on uh, dummy models, I can tell you it really is tiring it is absolutely tiring to provide that level of force on on a continual basis but you just have to and if you can't if you can't maintain that and you are with a bystander then maybe every minute to a half to two minutes swap over with them but if you can go as long as you can or certainly till the ambulance get there gets there it really would make a big difference then what you want to do is after your 30 compressions is give two rescue breaths So that's where you open the airway, do the head tilt, chin lift, pinch the soft part of their nose closed using the index finger and the thumb of your hand on their forehead. Allow their mouth to open but maintain that chin lift and then just take a normal breath and place your lips around their mouth making sure that you've got a really good uh, seal. 
blow steadily then into their mouth whilst watching, and that's really crucial, watching their chest to rise, taking about one second as in normal breathing. So this is an effective rescue breath. Maintain that head tilt and chin lift and watch their chest to fall as the air comes out. Take another normal breath and then blow into the casualty's mouth once more to achieve a total of two effective rescue breaths. What you don't want to do is interrupt the compressions by more than about 10 seconds to deliver two breaths. So it needs to be quite rapid, it needs to be quite speedy. Then straight away return without any delay to the correct position on the sternum and go for another 30 chest compressions. You may need to check the casualty's mouth and just remove any obstructions that are visible. And just make sure again, just to emphasize, that there is an adequate head tilt and chin lift when you are giving your rescue breath. You need to make sure that that airway is nice and open. It's recommended that you don't really attempt any more than two rescue breaths each time. And in fact, some argue that really what you want to be doing is just the 30 compressions. That There's an argument that the two, two rescue breaths don't majorly do much. Now, I would disagree, but it is the chest compressions that are most important. Now, what you want to do is keep going until the ambulance get there. It is, it is rare, I should say, for CPR alone to restart the heart. Unless you're certain, I mean absolutely certain that the casualty has recovered, then you should just straight continue with it. Now, signs that a casualty may have recovered include, well, waking up, for one, moving, I mean normal movements, their eyes may be open, but you'll start hearing normal breathing. Now, if the casualty does deteriorate, even if they show all of these signs, they're waking up, they're moving, they open their eyes and they're breathing normally, they could deteriorate. If you don't know the full extent of the injury, especially if they're internal injuries, be prepared to do CPR once more. In another uh, podcast that I'm going to be doing, I'm going to talk in a bit more detail about the AED, the defibrillator, and how that kind of operates, how that works, how to go about fitting one, first of all, and how to really um, just feel more confident with using it. I think the idea of getting a defibrillator, it sounds quite scary, especially if you've never used one before, but they're really simple and effective machines to use and it can make a huge difference. Okay, and on that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this podcast on First Aid Essentials.